Welcome to the Homo Ludens <laughs> Monthly Debrief with your host, Joe Dewhurst, and special guest star, Fred Savell. Thanks, Joe. I didn't know what to say to start with, and we needed a high-energy introduction, so you just provided that, and I really appreciate it. Sometimes I just need, need you to step in, and, and you did just that, so thank you. Um, so this first part of the discussion, as we usually do, is going to be Joe and I discussing about uh, the stuff that we read, watched, and played uh, this month. And then the second part of the podcast would be dedicated to this month's uh, Game of the Month, so this game for the Club de Jeu. And this month it was Pax Porfiriana. Uh, and we had a very uh, interesting discussion with uh, Patrick uh, and Corey about the game. So I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, th I would say... A and I'm biased, a pretty good discussion uh, about the about the game. But, well, uh, I, I will never find out because I refuse to listen to any podcasts. Or watch any of my videos, because that's also something that you need to know if you just found the podcast. It's the podcast of a YouTube show called Also Homo Lidens. That is a channel on history and board games. You should subscribe to it, like every content that you see, watch all of it, and send me a lot of money on uh, Kofi is the platform. Yeah, Kofi is the platform. I love money. Mm, that's pretty important. Uh, <laughs> good. I so, do. I do watch. I do watch your videos live sometimes. I watched your last one. Yeah, but because it was about uh, RPGs, and you were like, "That's interesting." But it's, if it's about something that I that that I'm passionate about, you're never interested. Like board but, games, not interested. Yeah, exactly. But to be fair, for me, it was a bit of a revelation that that video um, with Catherine Raman uh, about her game on the Paris Commune. I realized that there was a whole other universe that I didn't know nothing about, which was historical RPGs. So, so this is something I find interesting, actually. On, on the show, you claim to have never played RPGs, but I know for a fact that you've played Dungeons and Dragons. But I yeah. guess in, in your head, you classify that more as some kind of tactical war game. Is that, is that right? So for me, Dungeons and Dragons, first of all, there is two things. I played it when I was really young, and I didn't play it a lot. So it wasn't really something really formative for me. I don't have a lot of experience with Dungeons and Dragons. And what I play with Dungeons and Dragons, I do admit, yes, of course, it's an RPG, but I haven't really engaged with it a lot. And... When I'm thinking about RPGs, I'm thinking about, I guess, some something else um, that I didn't knew existed, and that's all of those indie uh, RPGs that are doing super interesting things uh, mechanically. So we talked about The Quiet Year is one of them. Um, I just bought a, a small solo game, yeah, a solo RPG, which is quite something for me because I hate solo game called Delve. Um, and there is quite a few things that I'm interested in, and I... Uh, and I also received some recommendations following up those uh, this discussion, but I don't know anything about it. And I, yeah, I played a bit Dungeons and Dragons, but I agree with you. It's maybe closer to miniature wargaming with a lot more details. <laughs> like, more, yeah. But it depends how how you play it. But yeah, you know, for for the actual core systems, certainly. When I when I used to run Dungeons and Dragons games, the best sessions would be where we didn't roll a single dice. So, but that's really you know, being a role-playing game in spite of the actual system you're given. Mm, yeah, I think that's that's actually interesting. But I really like the idea of people playing around with the system they are being given. And I feel like RPG, uh, the ARPG crowd does that a lot more. There is a lot more homebrewed home uh, campaigns, systems, adaptation. Like, it's way more accepted than... In, in in the community that I'm part of, like wargaming, we're really strict about rules. Like it's not, yeah. So I think it's quite interesting, very different, but also super exciting. But yeah, 
you 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 did play some some RPG, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I grew up um, playing a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. My uncle got me a starter set when I was eight or so, and I've been playing a lot since then. Mm. And and other RPGs as well, not just Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. And did you play some of those historical RPGs that that Catherine Mar was uh, mentioning? So less those kinds of ones. And and I think this is actually so this this distinction when you kind of mentioned it made some sense to me. So I've I've always played the more traditional kind of relatively rules heavy kind of RPGs, but these ones I think you're you're now getting interested in a almost like light light frameworks for kind of joint storytelling or something. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. Joint storytelling is really this part that I'm I, I think is really fascinating, uh, honestly. And and they often don't have any kind of um, uh, you know story you know lead storyteller role or anything like that. It's more mm. like a kind of collaborative experience, I think. Yeah, and that's the thing that I found interesting. So I was looking at the rules for the quiet year, and I and I really like this idea that it is purely you do have a facilitator, but then their role within the game is like they are just facilitating the mm. yep. the way the game flows, but they are not really a game master. They are just making sure that everyone can can take part and that it works but they are not mm -hmm. uh, they don't really have that much power uh you could say one one other thing i used to do when we were younger is i would play that kind of role but for something more like a board game um i mean sometimes a kind of D, D inspired board game but but more like a board game and this actually almost reminded me of when you were doing your teach and play of nevsky and volko was given doing this kind of storyteller role and you know if if perhaps somebody had said can i do this more unusual move and he just come up with some rules on the fly for it that would be almost like a kind of war game uh, RPG hybrid kind of system yeah. going on. Yeah, I think there is a there is a bit of that. I think I guess the, Matrix, Matrix games or something like this almost. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, Matrix games. Uh, but yeah, anyway, I always was yeah interested in, in RPGs, never really love into them, and now I think I got a good excuse. I think the closest that I got to RPGs is what I do is, so we have those books in France, but they come from, most of them come from the UK, you know, um, uh, Livre dont vous êtes le héros. So, you know, you... It's fantasy books, but you have to make decisions. I don't know yeah, how they're yeah, with, called. Yeah, with the numbered pages. The, the, the fighting fantasy series was yes, exactly. popular in the UK. Yeah. And yeah. what I do is my nieces over summer is that um, I get them some books and I actually run the campaigns for them, but I'm just reading the book and I'm trying to narrate and do those things and they mm -hmm. just make decisions and roll the dice and everything. But I get, I'll do all of the bookkeeping, so all the boring stuff yeah. for them or the hard stuff for them, which is uh, reading in French and all that. So... Uh, but yeah, I think it's it's a it's a fun way to play in a in a different fashion than than what we do. So anyway, I thought it was fun. Mm -hmm, but back to uh, back to the stuff that uh, people don't want us to talk about that how are not related to games. So this time we won't talk about your cat, uh, unfortunately. Oh, well, all I want to say is that um, she made it safely to a new apartment and she's settling in very nicely. Just in case anyone was at all worried about her. I think a lot of people were worried, uh, and it's good that you're just taking the time to reassure everyone. And probably when we post the link to this episode, it would be nice if you post a few pictures of your cat oh, of in course, I'd be happy their to. new setting. Certainly. It would be great. But what did you read this month? Um, what did I read? So this month, I what have I been reading? I've been reading book two of the Terra Ignota series. Um, the first one's, uh, what's the first one called? To Like the Lightning. Um which is a kind of, I don't know, like a kind of science fiction series um, with some political themes, which is quite interesting. I'm still not sure if I like it very much, but I'm reading the second book of a four-part series. So, you know, I'm clearly... clearly yeah, you like it enough to keep yeah. on giving it yeah. chance. It's, yeah. it's one of these things with like an interesting setting emerging, um, even if, you know, some of it seems a bit kind of irritating sometimes. But that's... Anyway, I'm not meant to talk about science fiction. Um, what serious well, you can talk about whatever you want. I've been reading. Serious historical books. I've been reading... Uh, 
a very serious book called Killing Hope about just all the stuff the CIA did in the 20, 20th century. It's quite an opinionated, opinionated perspective, but it's oh, quite and... funny. It's just like, you know, one one case study per every two pages will be like, uh, you know, like Italy post-World War Two, And then next page, what was going on in Chile or something, just d- jumping all over the world. It's just but, the CIA shenanigans. But Joe, we don't like opinions here. We're neutral. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's um, not okay. Well, no. So so what I mean by that, and it is just that even even me with my my very non-neutral perspectives can read this book and think um, the the authors definitely got a bit of an axe to grind. And even if I think they're probably right about a lot of these things, it's just important to keep this in mind when you're reading some kind of historical hmm. source uh, that they might be like downplaying some things or overplaying some other things or something. Yeah, that makes sense. But then also, this is why it's important to to have a, uh, an author that is really honest and transparent about where they are speaking yeah, from. So exactly. you can actually do that assessment yourself while you're reading. Yeah. And that was it? Um, yeah, I've been quite busy moving. So that, that yeah. one's quite a long book, but it's been quite easy for me to dip into. So if I've just got like 10 minutes, I can read one, you know, one little bit about one kind of case study, basically, which is what it is. And actually, I mean... You know, the author basically wrote this book because in the US in particular, I think um, this stuff's just not very publicly known. So he just wanted a big, almost kind of a big catalog of all of these mm. incidents, which the CIA were like more or less overtly involved in, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. And each of the chapter are like super like bite size. You can read. Yeah, some are a little longer. Um, you know, something when it gets into, um, you know, the post-World War II stuff in Europe, for instance, is kind of a bit bigger. and goes on a bit longer and stuff like this. Uh, but yeah, some some are very short. Mm. Um, and, and really one of the running themes throughout the whole thing is that, you know, all of these things are posited as, you know, anti-communist stuff to try and stop the expansion of the Soviet Union. But nine times out of 10, the KGB just cannot be bothered to get involved at all. And are just like straightforwardly not involved, maybe even quite friendly with the CIA officers in, you know, any given country. They maybe go to the bar together and have a bit of a chat. And like everyone knows that there's really not much Soviet involvement because they just can't be bothered to cause any trouble a lot of time. Uh, so that's that's quite funny. Yeah, that, that sounds actually pretty funny. I will have a look at it. I think that's that's pretty interesting. But you would say pretty accessible book, right? Um, yeah, like it's a little bit dry at times. Um, but yeah, yeah, pretty accessible and you know not not too long. Not lots of. I mean, there, there are sources mentioned, but not lots of like footnotes or anything like that. Mm. Okay, cool. Well. Uh, on my side, I also read some not serious books. So I said last time that I wanted to read another Terry Pratchett book, mm-hmm. uh, and I got The Night Watch. Even if Maurice told me that I shouldn't read The Night Watch, uh, that I should read other stuff first, I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. I think you're right, Maurice, but this is the one that I have at the library, so I didn't want to overthink yeah. it. And when I read it, I understood what he meant, because in Night Watch, there is a time travel element to it. And I think if you know more about the universe, you enjoy it more, because there is a lot of reference to other stuff that happened probably in other books. But I thought that in its own right, the book was really amazing. I had a lot of fun um, reading it. I, as we discussed, because it was about uh, the Night Watch, so the, that security organ of the uh, of that of that um, of that city in in uh, Terry Pratchett's world, it is a lot more political. It talks about uh, revolution. It talks about politics and everything. And I thought it was a, a quite a very entertaining and interesting book that I quite enjoy. And it confirmed that I think I really like Terry Pratchett, so I didn't expect that. And and for me, it's nice also to have this opportunity to read uh, like more like typical uh, British uh, fantasy. So that's mm-hmm. uh, yep. that's also something that I enjoy when I when I live here. I don't know what I'm going to read next. Uh, I'm going to check what's <laughs> available at the library now. In uh, but I feel like the they they don't have that many books of um, the this world uh, thing. Or... I'm I'm surprised, but I, I guess maybe 
they're less popular now. When I was young, certainly they would have lots in the library. So on shelves, I've seen six or eight, uh, but the other ones are not necessarily ones that I'm super interested okay. by. And it might be the fact that a lot of them are also already borrowed, or maybe they are in another section. Maybe they are in the young adult section. That's also yeah, possible. Maybe. So I need to, to, to search a bit you, more. You should try some of the charity bookshops like Oxfam if you have some as well. Ah, yeah, that's a good idea. But I like the idea of borrowing it also. It's, it's true, so... although I, I treat the charity bookshops like this as well. It's just something I learned from my father. It's almost like you're paying a small amount to charity and then you just and then you bring it read back. the book and bring it back, whatever. Yeah, yeah. that's a good idea. Um, and then on more serious with uh, quote marks, uh, I read a, a book called uh, Raw Concrete, uh, which is a, a book about uh, the history of, I would say, brutalism uh, in mm -hmm. the UK, mm -hmm. so about architecture, um, because there was a whole section around... Um, uh, the Barbican in it and how it was created and how it came to be and everything, which is an estate that I'm interested in. Um, and, and overall, I think brutalism is something that I find interesting. And I thought that maybe making a game on, on this topic uh, could be, could be fun. Um, and I, I thought it was funny because they, the way the name of the chapter for the Barbican is called the banker's commune, which I thought was, 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 <laughs> yeah, was quite a, a fun way to put it. And it's very true when you understand the history behind it. So that was quite nice. And then I started reading um, another book uh, called The Shortest History of the Soviet Union uh, by Sheena Fitzpatrick, uh, which is a very... I was just curious to see how you can condense the story of the USSR in just a few hundred pages. Uh, and it is really well, well written. I'm just halfway through it for now, but I think it's pretty interesting. And it's something that I read on the side of stuff that are a bit more specific mm -hmm. uh, about the end of the USSR specifically. Uh, because it's something that I'm interested in right now. <laughs> so, yeah. So those are the things that I've been reading. But I would say, yeah, shortest story of the USSR. Haven't finished it, but I would still recommend it. I think it's a, it's a really interesting read if you're interested in uh, um, in that part of uh, Russia's history. Quite, I mean, quite quite a large part. It's almost 100 years, right? Uh, it was 70, 70 years. Yeah, yeah almost 100. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but it's like, yeah, it's the whole 20th century more or less yeah. Um, yeah. that you could say, but it's, uh, it's quite, quite interesting. And then, uh, yeah, that's it. That's it. Then, yeah, some stuff on the side, but not, uh, not as uh, important as, as uh, those three. And uh, yeah, what did you watch? Uh, Granted that you probably didn't have a lot of time to watch anything. Well, we've been watching a lot of stuff um, because there's a lot of kind of sitting around at this time. We watched, uh, so we didn't have any internet when we first arrived in our new apartment here. So we watched all three Bourne films on DVD, which we got from mm. a charity shop, uh, first three. And they're still pretty good. They get worse, but the first one's great. Highly recommend it. Mm. Um, good, solid action film. Um, I've been watching the series Station Eleven sci-fi oh, yeah. yeah, uh, which I, I quite like. Um, it's got kind of a nice, quite so kind of somber but interesting tone to it. More Colombo sometimes. I think, think we oh, spoke about do... Colombo before. Ah, yeah. No, we've we've never spoke about Colombo. I quite really? like Colombo, oh, but I, really I must say Columbo. I have a, a, a bit of a. And I don't know if you watched it while you were in 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 Germany. Probably not because watching it in German might be hard. But um, uh, Inspector Derrick mm -hmm. is something that I don't know if you know it. It's a traditional German uh, police TV show oh, uh, that covers the 70s and the 80s. Um, it's really old school. Uh, it's like the actors are often the same, but they are playing different characters. It's even uh, set in Munich, primarily. Yeah, it is set in Munich, oh. and and it's um, and usually it's this TV show that on French TV uh, we've. They've broadcasted it usually in the afternoon on the public uh, television, so it's really not. It's more the thing for all people, and people make fun of it. 
but I think it has a, a lot more merit than people give it. Um, and I think it's a bit the same for Colombo. Uh, I love Colombo. It's it's excellent. Very easy, uh, nice TV to watch. Great. Yeah, it's well written, and the the, the yeah. actor is is really awesome. Yeah. What What's nice about it is um, it, it actually has a very like strong, I guess, kind of moral and political message running through it. I think where all of the all the villains are always these you know rich, quite selfish people, and Colombo's very gentle with everyone else around, uh, but quite he can be quite angry when he's dealing with these horrible people, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't think too much about that when I watched Colombo. I should watch it again. But I know that I. Yeah, I just enjoy the character, so it'd be probably a good idea yeah. to do so. Yeah. And is that is that it? Nothing. Uh, I mean, we watched tons of stuff, but that's that's enough. I think. I can't think of anything else to mention. Probably some Korean shows. We finished watching a show called The Flower of Evil, which was a, yeah. quite a very good Korean show. Um, highly recommend that one. I still haven't done my uh, take, taken that step into Korean uh, TV shows. One day, and you keep talking about them, and there's quite a few that you mentioned that I thought were interesting. I've watched a lot of Korean cinema, but no, never any TV shows. But I should probably do that, take a step in that direction. And there are quite a lot, of, a lot of stuff that seems interesting on Netflix, so mm-hmm. probably should look at that. Interesting. Uh, on on my side, what I watched this month is I watched uh, some old stuff. Uh, Two of them, actually, you could argue that are historical and one is more fantasy. Uh, the fantasy one is Midnight Mass uh, that, that is on Netflix mm-hmm. that I thought was, for someone like me, like really, really cool. Because as you know, I'm, a, I'm even though I'm atheist, I'm also a very uh, devout uh, Catholic. <laughs> I understand. It's a, a classic, um, classic situation. Yeah, exactly. That's, and then so many of these people. It's really interesting. There were some people that are, they say they are believers, but they don't practice. And the thing is that I'm not a believer, but I would love to believe. And I actually practice a lot, a lot more than most of the Catholics. I go to church and everything, and I love it. It's just that I'm really sad that I don't believe in do God. You, do you take the... Uh, no, 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 I, I, I couldn't. Be very, I know, that, be very deceptive of you. That would be, that would be rude and disrespectful. And I'm not baptized, so I'm not allowed. Uh, so I'm really, I'm not even at the, I'm, I'm, I'm even one step below being oh, yeah, able to, to, yeah. uh, to. If, if you were baptized, they'd give it to you anyway. They don't care. Yeah, they would, of course. But I, I think it's, uh, I, I, I respect, that's the thing is that I, I respect the institution of, uh, yeah. like, of the process. So I think it's, it's just, I don't want to do it. Uh, if I were that kind of person, I would go to a, Protestant uh, or you know reformist church like yeah, the, those kind of wild stuff it, where nothing is organized. I hate. I it. mean, if you want to get some bread and wine sometime, go to the Church of England because they, they just don't care. They'll give it to anyone. Yeah, so, it's that's uh, that's true. And we have a very nice church uh, next yep. uh, next door. They have a really great uh, organ player over there, so I might just go just for the music. Sometimes I just go and listen in when she practices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's pretty nice, but yeah. But anyway. They, Sorry, I was going to go on a tangent about Church of England, but I shouldn't do. Then I was going to talk about the house sites, but never mind. <laughs> That's fine. Maybe for another, we could another, have a full, yeah, a yeah. full uh, Christian episode in uh, in the future. But yeah, Midnight Mass, uh, really awesome, small series, light horror, I would say, uh, mm-hmm. but very cinematographically really beautiful. A lot of awesome actors, uh, uh, spooky, but not too spooky. Nice mysteries and everything, and and yeah, and very. Uh, yeah, a lot of uh, thoughts and discussions around religion and what it means to people, and in not in not a judgmental way. Like you, mm-hmm. it's not like oh, religion is bad or something like that. So it's like it's quite interesting the way it portrays it. Um, so I kind of like it. 
And then the other stuff that I watched is a movie that I wanted to watch for a while and I, and I didn't. Same again, linked to Catholicism. Uh, that's uh, Spotlight. I don't know if you know that movie. No, I've never heard of it. So it's um, so Spotlight is about the investigative work that has been done in Boston. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I heard about the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's the so you are you're following the team in the Boston Globe that is working on uncovering the the, the scandal around the church and um, and the, the the cases of uh, molestations and but more important than the molestations themselves, the whole cover up uh, behind it, which is super interesting. And it's also something that talks about faith, uh, but that talks also about organized religion. Um, and I really like the way it was written. Uh, because you understand how you can come to a situation like this in a, in a community that is uh, structured around something like the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty, int- pretty interesting, uh, really well-made movie. Also, like it feels good to have something that, like there is no spectacle in it because you mm-hmm. have mostly people talking and everything, but the way the image is used is so smart. Like you really have uh, craft of making a movie that is really strong here. And I think that the, the movie is just, uh, yeah, it's just a, it is a beautiful movie. Uh, so Tom McCarthy really as a director is just amazing. Like the, the work that he's done is, is great. But on top of that, you also have awesome writing, awesome actors. So pretty cool stuff. And then on the lighter note, I would say, uh, I also watched Tokyo Vice. Um, so I don't, I think we talked about, uh, about it, Tokyo Vice. It's a small series, so the first season was was released um, this year. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember yeah, that. and it's about this. Um, I don't remember how is he called. Uh, uh, it's about a, an American journalist that becomes uh, one of the first. Uh, I'm like, um, so he's called uh, Jake uh, Edelstein's that becomes one of the first uh, journalists to work in a in a major uh, Japanese newspaper, mm-hmm. and he specialized into. Uh, in the in everything surrounding the 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 mafia over there, uh, so it's a it's a more of a crime drama, but uh, so it's semi-fictional or non-fictional. But of course, I think they they yeah they made some stuff a bit more exciting for 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 the show. But it's based on a on a book from uh, from uh, from the journalist itself, and it's extremely good. One of the things that I was happy with is that I expected an an American production to rely a lot more on English. Uh, mm-hmm. And they actually made the decision to have quite a significant part of the discussions in Japanese. Um, cool. it, they, they didn't go to the extreme that all of the discussions are in Japanese. There is still like, you're pretty impressed by the number of people who speak in Japan, that, like a really good level of English in that TV show. So it's not really realistic in that sense. But I think it's a good trade-off, um, especially for an American production, which is super surprising. Yeah, usually they didn't have any any subtitles or anything at all, do they? So, yeah. yeah, exactly. And the cast is amazing. So you really have a cast, uh, both from the US and and, uh, and an excellent Japanese cast, like really amazing actors. Speaking uh, of subtitles, so the other thing we've been watching and enjoying is Miss Marvel, which is oh. a lot of fun. Um, I, although my problem is now the plot's starting to get going and that'll get quite boring quite fast, I think. But um, I would actually, if, if they could just do like a nice show about this... Um, Pakistani community in New Jersey with no superhero elements. That'd be great. Yeah, I, I started uh, watching Miss Marvel. Uh, I thought that visually it was yeah quite interesting and refreshing. That was cool. I was a bit... I didn't really understood why Disney uh, promoted it as a Muslim girl superhero thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't really understand the angle because when you watch the show, it's pretty clear that what's important 
for her and for her family culturally what defines them as an identity is not really that much the fact that they are Muslim, but really the fact that they're from Pakistan. Yes. And I thought it was a really weird choice. I was like, well, I lived in a lot of different Muslim countries and like the fact that they were Muslim is not really something that like defined them that much. Like, yeah. So I think to be honest, it's because if you if you sold it as you know their identities being from Pakistan in the US, people would have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. Perhaps that's unfair, but I I don't know. I feel like uh, yeah, it might yeah, not, uh, it might, not oh. it might not mean much to a lot of people in the US. Yeah, but I don't think it does mean much to say that. Yeah. No, absolutely not. I agree. Um, it's yeah. But then again, I might be talking about something that I don't fully understand, and I completely appreciate that. It's just that I thought it was a weird angle to take. Yes. Um, but yeah, um, no, I can see that. But uh, anyway, and I say that just after uh, saying that. <laughs> it's like having a, a whole tangent about uh, being... Uh, about your Catholic identity. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah. But uh, so Have you watched all of it? Uh, has it finished? I didn't know. Um, but I've been, we've been watching it as they come out, because it's each episode each week. Um, so yeah, yeah okay it's fine so... um i mean like you know it's it's just fine and easy to watch and kind of nice so that's it's easy yeah so a typical marvel uh disney production i guess yeah but slightly more interesting than some of them at least you know there are some characters who are more interesting and actually in the last in the last episode she's gone to um karachi in, in pakistan to meet her grandmother and they're talking about the partition and things like this so some slightly more heavy content uh yeah but i think that's that's it for me for the stuff that i watched uh I guess now we can probably go into the the thing that is supposed to be the topic of the podcast the that people yeah, yeah the people what people want the real content otherwise, otherwise what we'll have get you played again. we'll get complaints yeah. about not talking about games yeah um, exactly uh, well we haven't played anything because I've been busy and you don't play with anyone else so no that's not true what what have you played without me if anything what I have played without you uh, I think that I played without you I played Caesar by Paolo Mori. Mm. Uh, you know yeah. that's the, uh, yep. the the game in the same system at split at Splitskrieg. Uh, but it's it's funny because it's two pages of rules. Most of those rules are similar between the two games, but they feel radically different, like oh, completely cool. different experiences and completely different games, completely different dynamics. So really interesting, uh, short uh, game that is a bit of a brain burner and it cascades really fast at the end. So you take positions and at some point stuff starts to resolve really, really fast. So you have just a, a slow escalation and then everything resolves. Um, and it's uh, it's it's actually the tempo is is quite quite fun uh, in uh, in this one, and it often happens that you feel like you are going to completely lose, and sometimes you win very closely or you lose very closely. But it's there is a sort of weird balance that happens at the end that is uh, quite yeah I don't know how he does it, but uh, but it's it's, it's impressive. It's, it's really impressive. Um, I also played a bit of Heroes of Normandy. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they, they sent me a, a copy of it and also recorded a video with one of the designers. It should be released uh, later this month. It's a tactical system, but that feels a lot more like a miniature game than a, than a, a classic mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Hex Encounter tactical game. Uh, pretty fun. Yeah, it feels exactly like a, like a figurine uh, war game because you can build your own armies, you can choose your powers and everything. So really have this thing about creating your own scenarios and creating your own... Um, like deciding your assets and everything. So pretty, pretty interesting. And then I think that I haven't played with you. That's it. Because all the other games that I'm seeing, I've played. We played so we did play one thing together, which is this prototype I've been looking at called Iron Storm, this World War One game, um, yeah. which I think I think you've enjoyed playing. Yeah, I thought it's, 
I thought it it's great. So I played it a few months ago, the first time where you showed it to me, uh, and I played the new latest version that you shared uh, right now. Um, and I would say it's uh, my little path of glory, <laughs> something like this. This 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 isn't by me, to be clear. This is by a different designer who I've been I've been working with. Uh, yes, uh, so it's a, a Spanish great. designer. I don't know I don't know his name. Uh, Edgar Fenella. Yeah. But a, a very a super interesting design. Um, and you do have this feeling of building and destroying your deck, but in a, in a long way, uh, a bit like you would do in, in Path of Glory, but in a simplified manner. Yeah, it has. So, yeah, certainly inspired somewhat by Path of Glory, but much, much quicker and much tighter, perhaps. Um, I haven't played, played much of Path of Glory. And it has, as you say, some of these maybe deck construction or deck deconstruction elements to it. So, a few new nice, nice ideas in there. I, would, I wouldn't say that it necessarily shares some mechanics, but it shares uh, a, a feel, I would say, to, to Path of Glory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and 100% I agree on the fact that it's simpler. It's also shorter, not significantly shorter, but it is shorter. Yeah. But I think the big difference for me is how simple it is yeah. uh, while conveying the same feel. It, it makes it way more um, easy to bring to the table. It's easier yeah. to learn. It's easier to teach. Um, it's, uh, it's quite great. And I often feel like those easy World War One games that try to uh, give an epic but a simpler experience to uh, World War One fail a bit because they sometimes become a bit dull in what you do yep. and everything. Um, that's always a bit of the the challenge that you have here. This one really manages to offer uh, an experience that keeps being engaging. Uh, so that's I think that's pretty impressive. I, I found it has this has this kind of like one more turn property that something like uh, you know playing civilization on a computer does almost because each each turn is so quick you just play play through your hand then move on to the next one and you just always want to have one more little go and carry on going. Yeah, exactly. I would say more one more hand because one more hand is what I mean yeah, really. Yeah, yeah the yeah. turn can be a bit longer yeah. because yeah. you have turn, the same. I, yeah, turn turn is a vague term in this. In this well, it's the same yeah. concept as in um, uh, hands in the sea or yeah. uh, a few acres of snow. One of, you have one faction when they deplete their deck and have to reshuffle yeah. uh, that triggers the end of a turn. I think um, it's very confusing to call that a turn personally. I think we should call it something different. But... That's, uh, that's... A, a round because the turn would a round, be you, round would be okay yeah. yeah the turn would be the hand and the round yeah. would be the whole thing or even you could say so, you know one of these takes about six months in the game so you could even call it a season or something yeah definitely yeah but it's uh yeah it has been extremely fun and so i was pretty happy with the latest version of the mm -hmm. of the prototype that you showed me i like the small changes that he introduced i thought it was super interesting uh keeping the game pretty simple but just yeah just expanding on it that was really great and since we played it, I keep thinking about when are we going to play it again. So, so pretty, well, uh, I'm happy to play. You were absolutely smashing me in our game, so we could finish off and see if I can come back sometime. That would be, yeah, that and, would it, be but it, and that's funny, actually. The fact that it, the way it's happening in our game feels very much like Path of Glory when you're mm -hmm. playing the um, the Allies. is You're going to get punched at the beginning of the game really hard by the Austrians and the Germans, and you just have to take hits. Uh, mm -hmm. and stay calm and accept to lose uh, ground at the right time in the right places, but just like, and take hits and take hits. And at some point, things will go your way. And I think it's really what's happening in, in, in this game. And I'm, I was happy that it actually has that dynamic, which I think is, is quite interesting, but requires a, a patient, probably, allied player. Yeah, that's right. Cool. And well... Yeah, we, keep an we, eye out for more news about that scene, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We hope. Uh, I hope that you'll uh, you'll be able to share more stuff. We did play quite a few games of Watergate. Uh, did or, 
actually, I think we, oh, I think we, no, you only showed me the game once and then I played twice with other people after uh -huh. that. Yeah. Yep. Um, so yeah, so actually, the, so I did play it with you, but I mostly played it with other people. I think that's a great game. I, I really like Watergate. Yeah, it's amazing. It's really amazing. But that's, yeah, it's one of those games when, when I play it, I'm like, oh, Oh, <laughs> that, that's just, yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. like the, the the elegance of it and and uh, the balance between complexity and theme. I'm like, oh, that's yeah. I'm envious. I think, of, yeah, of that and um, what's the other one? Uh, Thirteen days. I think just both yeah. incredibly, incredibly tight, short designs, but have you know so much theme coming through just in the in the little systems they use. Very yeah. cool. And I think I appreciate these games even more now that I'm on the other end of mm -hmm. having designed Red Flag Over Paris. I liked them. I liked uh, Thirteen Days before, but I would say that now that I've finished uh, Red Flag, I like it even more because I realize how much craft uh, goes into making a game that is so balanced uh, and, mm -hmm. and and easy to bring to the table. Uh, so yeah, pretty impressive. And I love Watergate. I think it's great. I'm really looking forward to his next game, uh, Weimar, uh, which I think. Yeah, if he does something like this on a topic like that, I'm I'm all in. Mm -hmm. uh, so really look, looking forward to it. And what else? We played Crash and Moon, but we haven't released the video yet. Uh, I need to do that also. Oh, so yeah. to yep. to make sure that Osprey Games stays happy with me, so I can get the sweet sweet Stalingrad box from Undaunted. <laughs> that's my that's my objective. I do review to get more games, and that's what I am. I'm completely corrupted um so yeah but i think that's it uh yeah we should have some more time this next month i think for playing some games so yeah um, if you yeah. force me back next month we'll have more to talk about and actually the next episode will be in two months because the club de jeu this month is actually not for a single month it's for the whole summer so we'll be playing ah. sekigara for the whole summer well let's oh. play at least one game of that together as well yeah yeah that would be uh that would be great cool but i think that's it in any other any other thing that you played on the side that you that um, we haven't played together I, I've been playing a little bit of the British Way multi-pack because I've been mm. working on that. We're in the, the final stages of development for that now. Um, and I've been playing that solo a bit just to remind myself of some things about the game. Um, and I'm still very impressed by it. I think it's a very cool design. You know, this is one I've worked on. So, of course, I'd say that. But, uh, yeah, I think it's very nice. And I'm looking forward to that coming out soon. People being able to try it. Yeah, the, the artwork that has been released has been pretty great. Um... I think it's yeah. I'm super excited about this game, uh, and we're talking about potentially doing a, a campaign on the show. Yeah, that's right. Um, mm. So I, yeah, we we could play through the campaign on the show. I think that'd be really interesting. Uh, yeah, talk about some of the systems as we go. Let's wait for the final, m mostly final art to be there uh, because then we have most of it now. I should give a shout out to the artist we're working with, Matthew Woolhead, who's been working incredibly fast and uh, to a very high high level. He's great to work with. Even the cards, he did the cards already. Uh, yep. We've got all the cards and all the boards now. Um, so oh god, I'm also also a bit jealous right now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, no, I think it's it's great. So probably after summer, we should start. Uh, we should start a campaign uh, that would be really, really good. So playing the four game and having the 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 whole campaign mechanism on the side, and and probably having the final debrief. Uh, of our campaign, probably also could be fun to invite Stefan. We we could do a little a little journaling, but maybe after each game, even write down our yeah. thoughts. But would that require work? That's the thing. But this is you, you, we were talking about this. Um, Fred has said he wants to get more more role playing elements into board games, and I think this could be a way to do it. Okay, but it has to be like a bit improvised on the go during the yeah, live stream. I don't want to work for it because if <laughs> that's the case, that's just another thing that I will postpone and procrastinate about. Yeah. Yeah. Good. 
but uh, yeah, pretty excited about uh, pretty excited about that. And yeah, let's get some games in the next uh, couple of months. We can play Sekigara for sure, uh, and then any other stuff that you wanna that you wanna play. Any games that you would like to to play that you have on top of your mind? That um, I'd actually like to try Paths of Glory, which I haven't ever played properly before. So hmm. you know, maybe you can show me that sometime. Yeah, that could be actually uh, that could be actually a good exercise. That would be also a good motivation for me to go back into that rule book. I haven't played it in a while, um, but yeah, that would be great. We could do that. That's going to require some work. Yeah, well, I could learn it and then teach it back to you. Yeah, you could do that. That would be awesome. <laughs> that would be just perfect. And then I could probably figure out if you make a rules mistake, though. So that would be ideal. I will. I will. I always make one mistake. So yeah, good. It's guaranteed. But that sounds like a good plan. But I think that wraps up our monthly debrief. Yes, and we're uh, nearly at forty minutes again, so we didn't manage to go any shorter than usual. Yeah, so it's going. We're gonna. It's gonna be a, an episode pretty close to two hours uh, when I will add the music and everything. And we didn't talk about music, so we'll have to come with something uh, that is thematic based on what we discussed. Maybe the uh, generic. How do you say? You know, the music at the beginning of a show. You could put the Colombo music on. Yeah, right? that's what I was it. thinking about, but yeah. I don't know the name in English for how do you call the like music? The theme at tune? The... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I will put the music from Colombo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or from Derek, because Derek yeah. is awesome. Um, anyway, but it was fun uh, speaking together uh, once again. Thanks, Joe, for, for taking the time. Um, and thanks for everyone who's listening. Uh, and stay tuned for the second part of that podcast about Pax Porfiriana. <laughs>
So welcome back for the second part of the Homo Ludens monthly debrief. Uh, we'll be discussing our game of the month, Pax Porfiriana. Every month, the backers of Homo Ludens vote for a game uh, that we learn and play together during the whole month. And at the end uh, of that said month, we do a collective review. For this uh, Club de Jeu for the month of June, I'm happy to have with me Corey, uh, who's also known for his design work on Vijay Nagara, uh, and also Patrick, host of the channel Patrick's Strategy and Tactics. Uh, thanks for joining me, both of you, and happy 4th of July because you're both in the U.S. Thank you, Fred. It's a pleasure to be here today on uh, our nation's birthday. Yeah, man. Thanks for having us, bro. Yeah, uh, very nice to have both of you. So we'll be discussing Pax Porfiriana. Um, was released the first time in uh, 2012 with Sierra Madre Games. Uh, it was designed by Matt and Phil Enclude and Jim Gutt. I think it had a deluxe edition in 2019 with Iron Games. Uh, personally, I have the, the old version, so I don't know if there are many differences between those two, but we can discuss this later. Uh, to my knowledge, this was the first game in the pack series, um, and I really like the pack series because it offers a very different approach to historical events than most historical games uh, by putting players in the position uh, different kind of position that you would see then in other games. So you're not really a, a main political or military leader, but more a, a side actor that has uh, involvement into the event that it's depicting. So I think it's it's quite interesting. Uh, but before we discuss about the game and, and start reviewing it, uh, Patrick, I'm going to throw you under the bus uh, and I'm going to ask you, can you give us a bit of a historical context about the events that are depicted in Pax Porfiriana? Certainly, Fred. Thank you. And uh, I appreciate you contacting me 20 minutes ago and offering two hours to cover all of this historical material. So this will yeah. be a fun, it will be a fun time. No, actually uh, in all seriousness though, I'm going to, I'm going to sidestep this by saying that if any of you have not heard it yet, the Mike Duncan podcast called revolutions, mm. uh, not this current season where he's doing the Soviet revolution, the Bolsheviks, but the last season prior to this, just recently he did, uh, at least 20 or 30 episodes on the Mexican Revolution of 1910-1911, which is what we're talking about here with this game. So after this, go and download those episodes for your podcast device. You will not be sorry because I'm going to do the worst job trying to summarize <laughs> what he does deep scholarly research and uh, and analysis of. So I will give you the high points here. Essentially, the game Pex Porfiriana is built around the the presidency, the long-standing presidency of Porfirio Diaz, which was a period of time in Mexico known as the Porfiriato, and it is uh, roughly from his first coup in 1876 all the way up to his toppling in a revolution that began in 1910 and ran through at least a decade of time. So the game is simulating the period of around the early 20th century, uh, in all of Mexico, in all aspects, now the Porfiriato is marked by a time of, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, revolutionary and, and dramatic change and shift and growth in the state of Mexico from their period of time when they were a French holding under Maximilian uh, to the rise of a series of generals and military leaders Finally, to Porfirio Diaz himself, who ran the country in a what is considered a soft, um, uh, a soft dictatorship, because it was marked by a a liberal 
uh, intelligentsia that ran all of this. Now it was run mostly from the urban centers, of course, because that's where the power was held. But it's it's a dramatic change in foreign investment, uh, the the growth of large land holdings in hacendados, which are part of the game itself. Uh, and we also see all of these social pressures that we see in many revolutions, but true here in Mexico as well, because the attempt by Diaz during all of those years was to inflict uh, structure and order upon the Mexican state by calling in foreign investments because of the United States' close proximity. There was a large infusion of capital, uh, but with that capital came a lot of private ownership that would cause the lower classes, the uh, the indigenous peoples, the mestizos of Mexico, all of the very impoverished worker, working class would be put upon because the wealthy were getting wealthier. And all of these pressures finally amounted to a revolutionary class that decided that the liberal plan of rulership, where it was all centralized in around Mexico City and ruled from there, was not going to feed the peasants. Uh, there was also a, a large period of, of land, holding, land holding that would change where they would nationalize large tracts of land and then try to redistribute it, but it was never ever really getting all the way down to the poorest classes. It was always still going to these hacendados and these power brokers that we'd see who were constantly building uh, large fiefdoms and economic uh, structures so that they could keep themselves in power, either militarily or uh, in political power. So all of that has come to a head by 1910, plus with the intervention of the United States trying to maintain their grasp on their financial holdings in Mexico, uh, with the rise of the re the revolutionary class finally deciding that it is enough, it is enough, the the elections, and I'm doing air quotes, you can't see that, the elections of Diaz over and over again, uh, he was 80 years old at this time, he was very tired, and even he did not have an heir apparent. So all of that led to what would finally be the undoing of the Porfiriato and the beginnings of uh, everyone deciding that they wanted to be president for some period of time. And that's pretty much the game in, in itself. Uh, that's where the starting point of the game is. And then you go from there. So that's, that's yeah, so that's really interesting. Uh, and thanks for, for giving this this overview. So in the game, we are actually, each player is is playing the role of one of those uh, Hacendado uh, and are trying to to gain influence in, a, in this uh, collapsing uh, government. Can you tell us a bit more about the, those Hacendado based on what you, you said and the few things that I read? They're like, more, like they were like, the equivalent of today would be like Russian oligarchs or something. Exactly. Like this, right? Very, very much so. Um, uh, in in Spanish, hacer means to do or to make. Uh, it's it's also really like sort of the Spanish equivalent of democracia, right? You know, it's hacendados are men who have owned a large portion of land. Uh, they they own haciendas, but that term came to grow out to being any sort of wealthy. Uh, oligarch, as you said, and the six that are represented in the game cover the entire spectrum from a military where you have Bernardo Reyes, who was a loyalist general under under Diaz, to Carranza, who was sort of that shadowy power broker who was working the legislative side because he was a senator. We have Madero, who is a a uh, wealthy Hacendado in his own, but he understands the plight of the lower classes. So he is trying to help with this 
revolutionary reform to make it more equitable for all of the peasant class. Uh, we have Orozco, who is just sort of a, uh, he's up from Chihuahua and he's just a, you know, he's a power broker in that state, but he was a loud voice. And then we have uh, Reyes or Terrazas, who is a, a large cattle baron from that area up in the northern parts. And when you own lots of land, you had a say in the government. And then the one that's a representative of the Americans is Boss Shepherd. I mean, the very name, you know, the nickname Boss, we know what that means. He is a railroad magnate who was attempting to own as much of Mexico as he can, he could, for his particular railroad leanings. And and thanks for, for that overview, because I feel like it really gives the the whole context of the game. Uh, and you, you went into details into the, the different Hacendado. And it's interesting because when you were describing it, you can see that each of the Hacendado has a specific bonus and it, it reflects a bit what you were what you were saying about them. So that's 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 super interesting. Um, maybe just to, to conclude for, for that historical context. So you mentioned the, the revolution podcast that did something on the Mexican revolution. Is there any reading recommendation or any other media that comes to mind for, for that period of time? Uh, there are a, uh, personally, I'd have to go look at my, my bookshelf. I don't have any recommendations at the time, but I think if, uh, there are some, there's a good bibliography that, uh, Mike Duncan has put along with the revolutions podcast. And there are some very good recommendations for that, but any, uh, there are at least three or four that I, uh, off the top of my head that I remember reading low many years ago, but they will cover, uh, a lot of the the social, the economic, and the political aspects of this, because this is one of those, unlike the the Russian Revolution, which was very specifically steeped with these circumstances, this one touched on all of the usual things that you would expect in a in a revolution. It was truly the, the lower classes rising up, but sometimes it, it's almost with the best intentions. It was just because, hey, this guy's just been around for a long, long time. Maybe we can do something a little better for everybody else, right? Uh, but I don't have any specific book recommendations. I did not do my homework on that, but uh, there are shameful. Other. I know. I know. Shameful, shameful, shameful. Well, but at any rate, I'm not much of a reader, as you would tell. <laughs> Thanks for the awesome uh, historical uh, context. Uh, before we start uh, talking about the game, uh, what I like to ask to the to the guest um, when we're doing those uh, reviews is how many times did you manage to to play the game this month and 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 with who? And we could start with you, Corey. All right. Yeah. So uh, this month I managed to play the game twice. I played uh, locally with a friend, two player, which not my recommended way of playing the game, but you know it's fun. Uh, and then I managed to play with Patrick and Russ uh, online a couple weeks ago. Uh, only two, only two plays this month. Uh, I have played the game about two hundred times, though. Yeah, yeah, because I think that uh, all of us played the game before it was voted for the Club de Jeu. Uh, I yes. expect, uh, Patrick, how many times did you did you play this month and and before that? I also have played it twice this month. I uh, had the game with with Russ and Corey, which was great because the Yukata uh, implementation of it just makes it so easy to mm. have a pickup game. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is to teach this to new players just because you I love seeing that uh, initial light bulb go on when they they understand the nature the true nature of what power is in the game there's that moment in the game and then if a new player wins and they understand why they've won which we will circle back and talk about i'm sure that is the most gratifying thing so i was able to teach uh, three other new players uh, this month 
uh, earlier at a game day. And I have played it, uh, like Corey, at least 200 times. I've probably played it about 75 to 100 times face-to-face, and then the rest of them on Yukata. So uh, I've, been, I've been around a bit. Okay, yeah, that's that's yeah. You have quite a lot of experience with the with the game, both of you. Uh, I think I, I before the the club de jeu, I played it half a dozen times only before, uh, and I only played it on on Yukata. Even though I have the game, um, I didn't I didn't have the opportunity before this month to actually uh, play it face to face. And uh, the good thing is that because it was voted club uh, for yeah for the game of the month in June. Had the opportunity to, to play it twice, uh, and I could play it at my uh, war game club in London, so the cardboard emperor club uh, that I attend uh, most Wednesday, and I actually met with some backers from uh, from uh, from Homonidens there. So we uh, we had two games in a row, and we could play uh, the physical copy for for at least for me was the first time, so that was uh, that was great. But didn't play two hundred times, unfortunately. Uh, but that's uh, so I guess you're going to have some some interesting um, uh, perspective. Uh, and maybe just to 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 build up upon on that, uh, so you have both a lot of experience with Pax Porfiriana. How have you played all of the other games in the Pax series? And we can probably start with you, Corey. Uh, yeah, so I've uh, played Pax Premier. I've played Pax Ren. Um, that is the extent of my experience with the Pax series. I have Transhumanity on the shelf, just never gotten it down. Um, and then little interest in the other Pax games, if I'm being honest. And you, Patrick? I, I have played uh, Pamir First Edition uh, several times. I have not yet played the Second Edition reworking of it. I've played. I've attempted a play, or I've been ta- tried to taught. I have attempted to be taught Renaissance, but that did not go so well. So I have not got a favorable view of it at the moment until I actually get a a decent learning and understanding of it. Uh, I played Transhumanity once. Uh, it I did not do anything for me particularly, and uh, Pax Viking I have not yet tried yet. But really, uh, Porfiriana is the one I love the most just because I am so engaged with the historical information about it. Mm. So it's a bit sad what you're saying about Pax Renaissance, but I think it's something that we can do about uh, to do something about um, because I've I've played uh, Pax Renaissance a few times. And I must say, I, I'm pretty amazed by the game. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a pretty amazing game. Uh, so maybe we should organize a, a play of it just to, to, to change your, try at least to change your perception. Um, it's interesting that you said that you played Pax Pamir first edition, but not the second one, uh, because I feel like the first version of Pax Pamir is closer to Pax Porfirana in the sense that there is a bit of madness, whereas the second version is very streamlined, but that's maybe something we'll, we'll talk about. Um, and I received Pax Viking from Iron Games not that long ago, and I would be happy if we, yeah, if we organize a game to to explore it, if, if any of you two are interested. Uh, I played it only once for now, but I think it does something really interesting with uh, geography, but also the depiction of Vikings. Um, so, yeah, but I would say all of the ones that I've tried, I found that they offered something interesting uh, in their in the design-wise, at least, and in the way they portray these three. I think that's yeah, that's definitely something about that. There is there is something specific about the pack system. I feel, um, but there is one question that I had also for you, uh, just to re- regarding your experience. Um, so the Pax Porfirina game has a lot of small variants. Uh, 
um, like for example, around the victory conditions, uh, do you want to have uh, Porfirio Diaz uh, having more or less points added uh, for the victory condition, depending on the status of the game and stuff like this? Do you is there for for you? And we can start with you, Patrick, an, an ideal um, set of variant that you should use to play the game, or should you play the vanilla version of the game? What do you think? Uh, when I'm teaching the game, I almost exclusively just play it base, so that Diaz is always at uh, at a two base for each of the four topples. I think that works well from a teaching standpoint. Now, playing with regular players, and we usually play four-player almost exclusively on Yukata. Uh, I love five-player when I'm playing it at the table because that's also an opportunity to play with more people face-to-face because half of it is just the social interaction. Uh, I think with most of those plays, four and five on Yukata, we we play almost exclusively with the Diaz senility because that way no one is just sneaking in a victory on the first topple with, with loyalty points. Uh, I think that's great for experienced players because it's a check. Um, if, if we're playing, sometimes we'll do the iron hand where he's going to get stronger. Uh, I think that will help offset the, uh, the goal uh, that encourages the goal victory at the end. So that's, that's another way to do it. We play that less frequently, but I, I think Diaz is almost always in use when we play with experienced players. And is it the, the same for you, Corey? Yeah, uh, I actually forget that the Iron Hand uh, rule exists, or the option to play that way exists, uh, which is why playing with Patrick this month was my very first gold victory. I've never won with gold before. Um, but then senility, I almost exclusively play with that as an option. And again, it's just to avoid the loyalty point uh, rush at the beginning. Good. Um, so maybe now we should probably talk about the pack system. Because as I was saying, I think it's the first game in the pack series. Correct me if I'm wrong, but, but I think that's the that's the case. It was uh, in 2012. And I would like to ask each of you, what do you think is so appealing and unique about uh, the pack uh, system? Uh, and we can we can start with you, Patrick. Uh, well, my my college background, I was telling Corey before we started recording, is uh, is centered around Mesoamerica. Uh, now, pre pre Columbian Mesoamerica, but having the opportunity to visit Mexico, uh, I, I just love the time period. I love the culture of Mexico. Um, I was also a, what initially. <laughs> got me into this was uh, the young Indiana Jones Chronicles in the in the very first opening movie centered around Pancho Villa so I think from a cultural significance that uh, was a very compelling storyline and just understanding the whole political strata of Mexico during this time period is very engrossing to me and that was just this powder keg of colonialism that led to these internal you know attempts to uh, mirror the United States, mirror Europe to try to be this very affluent looking society with this power broker class right in the center of Mexico that would just control everything. And I, I find all of that immediately fascinating. And the original game for this that was created was Lords of the Sierra Madre, which sadly is from what I've been told, I own a copy, but it's nigh unplayable. And the fact that Eklund was able to distill this into a card game that touches on so much of this wonderful narrative. Uh, I, I had to try it, and when I did try it, I sought it out at Board Game Geek um, at, a, at the BGG Con in, I guess, 10 years ago, 2012, 2013, and found somebody to teach me, and I was hooked. It was just absolutely 
exactly what I wanted in a game about this subject. And is it the like the the, the fact that it relies on cards? You think that it's it's depicting so many different levels of interaction or layers of the same problem, different angles. Is it is it this part that that excites you the most? Yeah, I think I. I think I'm inclined mostly to enjoy the variability of card-driven games in their various forms, but there's so much, and some people complain, of course, that there's so much detail and so much busyness on the cards, but there's just so much that you can learn about it, and each card really does reflect what it is attempting to construct in a gaming situation, and it does change the environment from moment to moment to moment from all the players the fact that you have these events that could could be triggered or could not be triggered the, the how you're accumulating wealth and whether that's a factor in you're ultimately successful and this is something i teach new players is wealth is only a key i mean it's just one part of it you can have this wonderful economic engine but if you're not getting the prestige points in the various forms of of governmental control well when the topple comes along you can have a lot of money but you're probably not going to win and, and, and for you, Corey, what, what makes the back system so appealing? The level of multiplayer interaction that is in it, right? The way that the game works is rarely are you going to be picking on like just your neighbor, right? You're going across the table. You're um, in this game in particular, you know, sometimes going after yourself, which is just a fascinating um, way to have a game work out, right? I like that there's about 200 cards in the box and at any given time you're only using about a half to two thirds of them. Um, so there's a lot of variability in game setup. The way that the cards come out can really influence the, the, the general thrust of the game, right? I've had games that feel um, almost Euro-y in terms of you're kind of just building an economic engine, just kind of biding your time till you have, you know, till you can strike. Or I've had games that are incredibly, um, I would call them stabby, right? Where any card that goes down in your tableau is immediately being yeeted out of the game by another player, and you're doing the same to them. Um, and I just, it, it's a very fascinating, engaging game because of that. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you're saying. It's it's true that each time I played, and it's not only the Pax Porfirena, but it's true also for other Pax games, that because of the diversity of which cards are going to be in the game, when they are going to come up, it feels like, and depending on who's sitting at the table, that games can go widely differently within the same system, which I find quite interesting. Do you think it it can also be seen as a disadvantage, or for you, is it a pure benefit, uh, Corey? For me, it's a pure benefit. I would understand if someone else didn't like that, but I like that level of variability in my games. I don't want something where my actions have almost been predetermined because there's like the one true way to play it, you know? And for me, it's a. I find that it strikes an incredible balance between perfect information, imperfect information, and social interaction. Like Corey was saying, at no time, in 90% of my games, 95, let's say 95%, 95% of my games, I never feel like there's no path to victory at any point in the game, except the very, very end. It's like, you're, you're thinking, oh, please, Corey, don't do this. Oh, he did that. Okay, that was our last game. But, you know, if you've got if you've got cards in your hand, you've got options, you know, as it, and nobody is, I don't think, ever out of the game completely. There's always a possibility that you can do something because you never know what's going to come up in the market to help you. Right. 
Yeah, and it's interesting what you're saying because I feel like the more you play this game, and it's the same for all the PAX game, the more you start to be able to read them properly and, and the game starts to reveal itself. And those paths to victory, you start to see them and, and, and see how the different cards connect to each other and your different opportunities. Do you think that the, you've taught the game to quite a few people, um, Patrick? Do you think it's a hard game to teach? Not, I mean, mechanically, but to for people to understand what the game is really offering. I think that a lot of people come to the table um, enthused, but a little apprehensive because they see this this array of cards out there with all of the information. One of the you can, the simple things you can do when you're teaching the new player is to, for example, if I'm I've got all the new players on one side of the table. I will turn all the cards so they can constantly be reading them in, and you know, as related to their field of vision. So I, because I can see them. Oh, I know that. I know what that card is. So I recognize them. But for them, trying to process all of the possibilities of these cards is fairly overwhelming. So you just have to take them through steps. And usually after the first topple, I think most everyone has. Okay, I understand that I can do this. I need to start building a primary income engine. I need to start utilizing partners to my advantage. And then by the third topple, perhaps if the game's not over, they are understanding that they control their destiny by making sure that the regime matches whatever it is they're trying to do. So yeah, there's there's a there's a little bit of a learning curve. I'm not gonna say it's steep, but it is it's a heavy incline. But the wonderful thing about it is when the game is over, there's the majority of them are hey, let's play this again either later today or if we're at a con tomorrow. And, and I mean, they are hooked. You can just tell because they want to know what's going to be different the next time. And I think that variability from game to game is so incredibly alluring for any player. Yeah, I really agree with that. Uh, you were mentioning a bit earlier uh, Lord of Sierra Madre. That was the the game that Philippe Clude made before this one. Um uh, quite a long time ago. I was wondering, Corey, did you have any experience with it? Have you tried it? No. One of... Someone that uh, I was recently uh, interacting with um, on the Homo Ludens uh, server sent me the print and play files for it, and I took a look at them, but that's all. I. It looks fascinating. It looks nigh unplayable, but it looks fascinating. That's all I know about it. And 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 you, Patrick, you said that you managed to get a copy, but you never, you didn't manage to play the game yet, right? I have not. It is uh, like Corey was saying. It's uh, it's when you lay out some of the pieces, they're adorable in their roughness because it's it's almost one step above a print and play. Clearly, there was a publisher that made it, but it's you know the the iconography on the pieces is all very simplistic, and it, it's it's a game that I'm so glad that he went and revisited and said, is there a way I can make this either more playable or more presentable to new players? Uh, so yeah, it's, it's pretty rough, but it's got, there's a lot of good stuff in there, like with all of his games, but you've got to be willing to tackle it. And I think it's much more uh, available for, for new players in this current form as a card game. Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, so, I'm going to ask you a hard question, Patrick, but you gave us the, the historical context in the beginning and you played the game a lot. In your opinion, your educated opinion, would you say that the game is doing a good job at depicting the history that it is uh, uh, trying to portray? 
Yes, but uh, the the players have to want to treat it as more than just the skin of the game. They have to be because if you pick up any of those cards, the the, the one that comes back and it came up in our game too with Corey and and I and Russ was oh the Ronstadt gun store and you're like Ronstadt that's pretty cool that's an interesting is that like Linda Ronstadt and you pick it up and the little flavor text on there said yes indeed that is Linda Ronstadt's grandfather so now Amer- American music lovers have a connection to the card and but even things like that the gun store uh, you know from a narrative standpoint you play it and you get money when someone throws these orange cards that cause bandits or whatever. So those bandits have to buy guns somewhere, right? So from a thematic standpoint, it all seems to dovetail very well as a machine. And uh, that's what's so wonderful about it as a, as a thematic device to me. And, and for you, Corey, I don't know how, you, how much you knew about the history before, but how do you feel the game is doing a, a good job or not at, at, at depicting it? Yeah, so uh, I actually knew a fair amount of the history. I live in the uh, region, and it's uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, as far as depicting it, I think both from like a thematic standpoint of using the history to inform the game choices, it does an excellent job. And then going the opposite way, actually you know, displaying the history, like showing the history there, it doesn't necessarily do a good job of beat by beat, blow by blow, showing the history. Just because of the kind of game it is, that's not how this is going to happen, right? Same same could be said of like coin games or anything else. Uh, it does an amazing job, I think, of showing the actors, the actions that they could take, what was happening, and the kind of chaos that reigned. Um, and make no mistake, like the Rex- the Mexican Revolution was a incredibly chaotic time the way it panned out in the end is not how it had to end right they could have gone any number of ways yeah and i think that's something that the game shows really well is how all of the possibilities are here on the table because just for for the people who haven't played the game you basically have four different regimes that you can be in and when the topple comes in you're going to want different kinds of victory points so you've got anarchy and if the regime is anarchy you want to have more revolutionary clout if it's Pax Porfiriana itself, you want to have more loyalty to the regime, like, and you become, I guess, an heir to to, to Porfiriana's. Martial law, you're, it's going to be, uh, what is it going to be? Command points, I Command, think. Yes. Yeah, and U.S. intervention, that's going to be the the outrage. Yeah, so I think that's that that shows already something like the different victory condition, different depending on the different. Um, uh, situation i think is interesting and most of the cards are also like very thematics and, and everything it just had a few moments here and there and i would like to have your opinion i remember that i think there is a, a card for the mexican communist party which i was a bit surprised by because I, I i thought it was a bit out of the of the scope of the of the event because i guess that the the mexican communist party cannot really ha- appear before 1917 and i don't know when it was created but um so that's the the first thing and i guess probably the card depicts something else uh, wider than this and the other card that also struck my <laughs> where i was a bit surprised by it was the us attorney's office that uh, makes you nationalize a us enterprise and i had a hard time connecting in my brain how the U.S. Attorney Office would nationalize the U.S. enterprise. I, I was a bit confused. But um, do, do you think that there are a few oddities here and there that will be a bit weird or taken in the widened context of the game, it does make sense? 
to go back to what you were saying earlier about as a as a learning device, it's not. Uh, Corey articulated this was that it's it's not a, a beat to beat to beat. There's no temporal line to this. It is a large bowl of things and ideas that were this 10-year period from 1910 to 1920. So you are going to have, and it's, it's also not in a vacuum either, right? It's not just Mexico. The the wonderful news headlines, which a lot of people, new players will kind of just let them just go. It affects not only the economy, which is a, and, and I'm sure we will talk about that, but the fact that you are modeling things such as the Zimmerman telegram and uh, world, you know, World War One related events that are going on in Europe. Those affect the game state of Mexico and possibly the regimes, but it also it, it keeps you in tune. And all of those events, like you were saying, with the the U.S. Attorney's Office and such like that, it's it's just a series of ideas of possibilities during that ten year period, right? So. I think what it does is, you know, when they were sitting there coming through, hey, we need to take that card that does this. Well, thematically, that was probably the most appropriate. We've got ostrich farms. I love the ostrich farm. We've got chickpea plantations, all of that stuff, which like, what does that have to do with the Mexican Revolution? But it had an effect on the state of Mexico, not only during the, the Porfiriato, but then during this transition period in the revolution. Yeah, it's really interesting what you're saying about the event because I think that when you're in the game, especially when you're learning, you're not really paying attention to the to how much theme they're bringing. And and as you say, this this external perspective showing that what's happening in the game is not happening in the vacuum. And you've got the Spanish influenza that is also a good example and everything. And it's interesting that that you have those events that are really just bringing what's happening in the rest of the world uh, inside the inside the game. Any thoughts on, on your side, Corey, regarding some of the cards that might feel a bit odd? Uh, yeah, I think a big part of that is because the game is not just... The Mexican Revolution doesn't have um, really clean beginnings and ends, I don't think. It's a time period of a lot of political upheaval that extends to either end of what we think of the, as the Mexican Revolution. Um, one of the things that those cards are doing is the revolution, Patrick, I'm wrong, but it's like 1910 to 1920, right? That's right. Yeah. Yep. Those cards go all the way back to like 1902, 1901. Um, and I think there's a couple that actually go a little bit past 1920. Um, so when you have stuff like the Mexican Communist Party, which was founded in 1917, um, I, I, they're just giving you the pieces that were in in play at the time right how it all shakes out is going to be dependent on the force that you the hacendado and your organization um put on the the pressure you put on those pieces so i think it, it's a really neat way to get all the history in there but then kind of let the players make of it what they will and for experienced players the more you play it if, if cory and i played 20 times you know face to face not only do we know just what to expect from each other's play style, but we can have more. We are afforded the opportunity to have fun with the cards. Oh, you pulled up the this card. Oh, you, like the other day, you pulled up the Crook railway gun. Uh, maybe it was Russ that did it, but he fired that and <laughs> destroyed uh, my standing troops on there. Well, you know, we could have some fun with, uh, oh, yeah, I got that railway gun again. Gosh. So once you recognize the certain aspects of the game, you are you have the ability to enjoy the historical nature of it more so than if you're just trying to focus on how to play the game as a new player. 
And I'd, I'd, I'd add to that, too, that uh, if you go into this game looking to win, I think you're maybe not giving the game the... Uh, you're not letting the game give you the experience that you really want it to. You want to go into the game to experience it. If you win, that's cool. Um, but trying to win and doing everything you can to win, like being super single-mindedly focused on it, is going to lead to a worse experience than kind of enjoying the ride. And I think that's a really interesting comment that you're making, Corey, that I think applies to most uh, PAX games. Uh, I, I think it's weird to say, but I think if you're just trying to min-max your actions, you're you're losing part of the fun. Uh, but that's, yeah. Do you think it's also the case for, for the other ones? Uh, for Renaissance, absolutely. Premiere, I'm a little less certain of that on, but Premiere, I also... Not Pamir second edition. I think that yeah. doesn't apply. But maybe the first yeah. edition, you, you probably just need to go with the flow, I think. Yeah. I, I think that's accurate. Uh, Patrick, I, were we talking about where it's kind of like you're, the game's playing you and you're playing the other players more than the other way around? In in regards to which PAX title? Uh, uh, Porfiriano. After oh, Porfiriano? I, I don't think so. I think uh, it, any good player will understand the tools that are available to them. Obviously not in the first game because you're, you're, you're still pulling levers. But after a while, you are recognizing the, the general nature of these are partners. These are enterprises. These are, these are the tools that I have to make things work. And as I pointed out to Russ, you could potentially win a game with no enterprises. You can, you can leech money off of other people's connections and partners and, and whatnot. So there's money to be made out there if you're willing to try different things. And I think that yeah. rewards players who are willing to experiment in the game. So I find that's less that it's playing you because you, you do have to adapt, but there's never hmm. a point where you are just on rails and only doing what the game wants you to do. Yeah. There is one thing that we didn't discuss. We talked about the history, a bit of the economical system, but I think there is one thing that is interesting with the game is the way it's depicting geography. Uh, so the, the game actually has three virtual locations. Um, and and so I, I think you have the, the US or the part of the deterioration that is under US influence. Then you have Sonora and, and, and Chihuahua. And then those places you can go to... to you can go via connections that are abstracted on the cards. I was wondering, Patrick, what, how do you feel about the way it's depicting geography in this very odd way, very abstract, but then it, you do have the sense that things are separate. I think the abstraction is perfectly suited for this game because there are times when you, the, the fact that there are restrictions on most everything that you can do, depending on which district you're attempting to do it in, that's perfect. That's a nice constraint from a mechanic standpoint. But also the fact that you can change the nature of that dynamic, perhaps by building a Mexican transcontinental railroad, right? Allowing federal troops to move back and forth to, you know, or, or during regime change, anarchy, anybody can go anywhere. So uh, the, the transportation network by moving things based on the, the different types and the different districts, I think is perfectly abstracted for this uh, i wouldn't want to work too hard on trying to figure out okay i've got to get these federal troops over to here and and if i'm doing that i'm working too hard to think about it right yeah it's not really the important part of the game and that's what i think is interesting is that the geography is here but it's not going into the way of the gameplay so you don't have complexity from movement but you have just the operational complexity of if i want to send my troops to that area 
uh, I have to spend that much money because this is the type of connection that I have there. So I think this is this is really interesting. Corey, what did you think of the the way geography was depicted in in Pax Porfiana? I'm a big fan of the way the geography is depicted in this game, specifically for this time period in conflict. Um, I like that U.S. troops don't just randomly, you know, invade Mexico. There has to be a kind of political will for them to do so. That's the U.S. intervention, you know, um, regime. I like that in anarchy, anyone can go anywhere because hey, it's anarchy, right? I, I, I like the way that the limitations were handled and then the way that the geography is handled both via um, like connections connecting to like things and then the difference between Sonora and Chihuahua is incredibly just thoughtful right it's taken into account the actual like lay of the land as it was during the time and the various logistical means of moving around and getting it out of the player's way it's still there it's still accounted for it's modeled but it's not something that's just staring you in the face i don't have like a line of brown hexes it's like up oh, can't pass these until you know turn seven right i uh i, I really like that i did that yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really and, good point. And for the most part, Chihuahua and Sonora, large parts of those areas of northern Mexico are pretty desolate. So the parts that, that Mexico did not develop as plantations or rail connections or whatever, logistical locations, they are... I think the abstraction works pretty well because they don't want to be in those spaces. They want to be to the Southern lands or up into as close to the uh, United States border as possible, because that's where all of the urban centers and connections were built around. So we are already at 40 minutes. I was thinking um, if you, do you guys have anything to add or should we go into the, the, the final micro review for, for each of us? Uh, I don't, I don't know if I, this belongs in this spot or in the final review, but uh, if you want to talk about what the one aspect of this game that I love more than anything is the fact that more than any other game, it makes me and other players think. Just take a moment, look around the table, look at the board, and you can make choices it really does just reward. All right, take a minute. If I get this, it's not analysis paralysis. This is unlike analysis paralysis to me. I have played with players that take it a little too far and take too long, but this is a very quick game for the most part. You can finish a game in 90 minutes to two hours, but more than any other game, this one makes me look and go, okay, this is my current state. If I do this, what are, you know, what are the ramifications? If I buy that card, can I do this? And I find unlike chess, I can look through three or four turns ahead and go, okay, if I do this and they don't do that, then I can win on these conditions. And I love that about this game. Mm. And you, Corey, any last thoughts before we go into the, into the, to the, our final thoughts? There is no game that makes me feel quite as conniving and tricksy and, you know, feel the skullduggery of being a true political operative in an environment where, you know, political violence is one of your main tools like this game does. Um, something that the game allows you to do is you can literally assassinate your Hacendado to get ahead in the game. Um, and that just, it, it's a wonderful feeling of, we we're talking about, you know, pulling levers, right? This is a game where every, like, lever is exposed to you. There's not a whole lot that's sacrosanct in the game. And I, I love that. Yeah, it's really very open in that in that regard. Good, but I think that's 
that was an excellent discussion. So, so thanks for that. So what I'm going to ask for you is just in a minute or so, um, just do a micro review, what you like, maybe not so like, not, not like that much about the game and, and, and give it a, a rank out of 10. Uh, and we can start with you, Patrick. I'm on the spot. Uh, well, I will just say that for all the reasons articulated previously from the historical nature to the, the gameplay, the, the way that the cards drive the mechanics of the game to to Corey's absolute description of skullduggery. I love being a power broker in this game. Uh, it it turns on a side of my brain that uh, that I don't normally, you know, in, in other Euro games, I can't understand. I need to get these four cubes into this widget to do whatever. But this one, it all makes sense. I, I don't know if it's just because it's a historical-based game. And of all the pack series, I think that's why I like first edition Pamir is because... Cole patterned so much of the design and development of the original Pamir on his love of Pax Porfiriana. And that's why when he and I play, we just have such a good time because we get the game, right? It's it's not just pulling levers. It's There's a thematic element and a desire to try to play your best game because of these historical forces. And for me, that's a, that's a 10 out of a 10 game right there. Well, that sounds like a great review. Thanks, Patrick. And for you, Corey? Yeah, so I mean, I'm going to start off with my rating. I'd give this game a 10 out of 10 as well. This is you know, one of my top five games of all time. I will never hesitate to pull this out, show people it. Um, it's it, it's not completely perfect to me, right? No, no, no game is ever going to be. But I can't really point to anything other than occasionally the mix of cards is going to lead to a, a suboptimal game, right? Um. But it's tight where it needs to be tight. It's loose where it needs to be loose. It's theme and mechanics just mesh together beautifully. It is incredibly thoughtful and a lot of pieces of design where you're like, huh, I wonder why that is. And you think about it for a little bit and you're like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Um, connections in the game are a lot like that. I just, I really cannot say enough good things about this game. I think it's amazing. And just to piggyback on that, uh, because I realized that when Corey said it, I didn't say anything negative. Yeah, the, the, the element of the card distribution can be skewed. I've had games where, through poor shuffling, I've had, we just have a dearth of uh, bear markets coming through so that we go into a depression. And if you've got new players, a depression can be absolutely crippling to to teaching and enjoyment for the new players. So that's a factor that, you know, that is one negative element to it that, you, you either have to allot for or balance out. Um, but I, I think otherwise, the, uh, the, the learning curve of it, you really do need someone to invite you in and bring you along, much like Rodney does with Cuba Libre. You could clearly see his passion and love for the coin series, and that's a really good introduction method for new players. If you find someone that can teach you this game, take, take the opportunity to do so because it is it worth it in every way, shape, or form. So both of you placed it at a 10 out of 10. That's peer pressure here. Uh, I would say Seven. That... <laughs> no, I would say that for me. So I, I really I really like I really like this game. I, I like it a lot. I love how it portrays history as a complex interaction of on, on different levels, social, economical and military. Um, and it and I think that's really interesting and not enough uh, games are doing this. Uh, like it's a true political game in that sense. Like it's really covering all of the almost all of the aspects of, of politics, which I think is is really great. It's also a great window into that period of history. Like it was for me a great way to 
to get into it and it was uh and i wanted to read on the side about it so it's i think it was really interesting and it's not a period of history that you are that is often depicted in games so for this also i think it's a it's it's really it's really great I think, and we haven't talked that much about it, maybe a bit in the in the early part of the discussion, but one of its greatest merits, you could say, is that it created a system that so many other great games are built upon, which I think is is quite something. And I think the system, like this openness and, and the kind of perspective that it gives to an event is very unique. And I'm, I must say, I'm happy that a system like this exists and I hope that it will continue to grow and some people will continue to borrow from it uh, to make new games with it. If I have to say that I have an issue with, uh, there would be two of them. One of them you already mentioned, Patrick, and is that the shuffling can make the market a bit messy and sometimes it can hurt the game if you don't, if you if you are unlucky and you have the right, not the right sequence of card or it's all, all in one uh, specific province or or you have this recession because of the events and everything. And it can be, it can really hurt the dynamic of the game. And then the other thing that I must say, and we haven't talked about, but I, <laughs> I think know we need to talk about this. <laughs> is, is is the game is even though the graphics are charming uh sometimes it's a bit hard to play it's a bit all over the place it's a bit of a mess but it does have its charm and i think i would i would i'm very happy to have the original version also for that because it, i think it's it's kind of funny but in a way i feel like it would be great if if there were um reskinned uh clean version of the game especially to learn uh new players to 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 uh, to to get into the system because I think it's it's quite a barrier of entry. Um, uh, maybe not for people who are used to old school for the war games and everything, but I would say for a wider audience, when you look at those cards, you're like, man, it's all over the place. Oh, place. Sure. It's, it's really sure. tough. But uh, so my rank, On, well, I would say, oh, oh, I haven't said my rank. I would say, I would say, I would say, I don't know. I would say eight point five out of ten. Maybe, maybe no. I would be peer pressure. I would say nine out of ten. I think it's an awesome game. Yeah, it's it's really it's really amazing. Uh, just to piggyback on your thought there about yes, I totally understand that the nature of the cards they are ugly. But if you were looking at it as an opportunity, what I have seen several times now is people saying I'm going to redesign these cards, and they they jump on it as an incentive to try and they've come up with some interesting designs so you know more power to them if you want to go through 200 cards and redesign them in a better framework that helps you understand the game better do it you know that's that is a wonderful opportunity to seize I, I also did not mention that the, the living rules can be a, a little bit all over the place uh, for many reasons I've heard you discuss for for historical notes and other things, but it's it's a bit of a mess. So if you can have someone teach you the game, you can get through and use the reference materials as, or the rules as reference materials. Otherwise, yeah, it's it's a bit of a slog. Yeah, and I'm not opening the Pandora's box of discussing uh, <laughs> feeding includes so. <laughs> uh, uh, footnotes for his rules, which I think are batshit insane. Uh, but that's another discussion. Um, and yeah, I think it... it it does disservice to the game, and I think the the game are, are often not really a good reflection of those footnotes anyway. So I think yeah, it's probably better to leave it out. In 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 good news, the footnotes of this game are not that bad shit insane at the very least. This is probably the cleanest of the game of the Pax games. Okay, because Pax Renaissance, God, what was some fucked up shit in there? I was like, whoa, that's quite insane. Look, but, bro, uh, the bankers were actually the good guys, man. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, that's not the worst part. Uh, that's, uh, it's not the worst part, but it's the one that lodged in my head. 
uh, yeah, anyway, but I think that was, uh, that was great. So maybe to conclude that the discussion, um, so as I was saying at the beginning, uh, this is our war game club, virtual war game club for the backers of the Homo Ludens, uh, show. Uh, and we choose a game each month. Uh, and now we have to choose a game for the summer. So that's going to be our July and August game for the Club de Jeu uh, number four. And we have five games to pick from. Uh, the first one is, surprisingly, Twilight Struggle that generated a lot of discussion on the server recently. The second one is Time of Crisis. The third one is 300 Earth and Water. The fourth one is Command Covers Medieval. And the last one, number five, is Sekigar. So... First, you, Patrick, which one do you think you're going to vote for? Uh, number six, Combat Commander. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're not allowed to do that, Patrick. Oh, uh, that is a tough one. I, I originally supported the choice of Time of Crisis. I think that's a really good four-player game. I love playing that at conventions, even though I'm horrible at it. I cannot build a good Roman deck to save my life. So I'm, I'm terrible at it, but I love playing every time because... Like this game, you never know what's going to happen next. Barbarians at the gates everywhere. And I think it's a good sign that you enjoy a game that you that you're bad at. I think it's uh, it's uh, well, that's it's, most games. Come on, Fred. Yeah. It's saying a lot of other game like that. A game that you enjoy losing at is probably a good game. Um, and you, Corey, which one are you going to vote for? Uh, so I have already voted for um, Command and Color, Command and Colors Medieval. However. I would be happy with any of them winning and time of crisis has a very special place in my heart, despite the fact that I don't think I will ever win a game of that. Nope. Me neither. Uh, you, just, you guys just need to play against me. <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the thing. There is always this thing. Like I think it was for Washington's war. People saying, Oh, it's impossible to lose with the British. And it's like, yeah, just need to play against me. I can lose for you. Uh, <laughs> so that's uh, I can do it. I can do it. I can lose with any faction in any game. So that's, if you need to win a game, just, just reach out. Um, I haven't decided which one I'm going to vote for, so I might do what I usually do and vote for multiple games, even though I'm not allowed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can put your finger to the wind and go, which way? Is, which one is the popular one? I think well, I would I... keep my vote for the end just to maybe cut a like uh, remove a tie or something. Um, so I maybe... will say, 300 is pretty much winning right now. Oh, I don't. The, so the thing with 300 is. I usually I have a very selfish approach to the Club de Jeu. I like when the Club de Jeu is forcing me to play a game that either is on my shelf of shame or that I feel I haven't played enough. The problem with 200 Earth and Water is that I think I played it 50 times already. <laughs> and I'm always happy to play it, don't get me wrong, but I would like if the Club de Jeu could push me to play maybe Command and Colors Medieval a bit more or Time of Crisis a bit more. 300, I would be a bit, a bit sad. But the good thing is that I could learn anyone to how to play the game quite easily. Uh, so yeah, we'll see. So you're saying that 300 is winning. I need to check that by like a long shot, double no. the next closest. No, no, you're 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 teasing right now. It's got nine votes. Oh, for fuck's sake, you're right. <laughs> That's insane. How did it get nine votes? Who did that? Oh God. Uh, I, the good thing also about the club de jeu is uh, that Luis is always cheating because he's the one uh, controlling the votes and the nominations. And he might end up with a funny reason that 300 didn't win if he doesn't want to play it. So we'll see. N nothing is ever done. Um, so we'll see about that. But uh, Patrick, Corey, it was awesome to have you to, to discuss Pax Porfiana this month. Uh, we'll see uh, yeah, what games win for, for our Summer Club de Jeu. 
uh, and uh, we'll talk uh, to our listeners uh, in a couple of months to debrief. I would like to thank everyone for listening. Remember that if you want to join uh, the Omolidens Discord server, you can back me on coffee. Remember, there's also a YouTube show that you can uh, watch videos on, and we have great videos over there. So I also recommend that you subscribe to the YouTube show. And thanks, everyone. Have a good summer and speak soon. <laughs>